welcome to Hit the Six. It's bright and early on Tuesday, the 19th of January. But Michael, I'm dead excited. India just beaten Australia in a thrilling final day chase to win the series 2-1. You've, you're asleep. I was awake. Uh, but what, what are your thoughts hearing that news as, as you wake up on your Tuesday morning? No, I'm very pleasantly surprised. Oh, I was hoping for a draw, to be honest. I wasn't even really hoping for a, a win for India. Um, so, yeah, I'm very happy. You, did you did you stay up for a lot of it, Rob? No, I, uh, I'm i blessed. Well, it's normally a curse until cricket's happening in other parts of the world. Uh, I'm blessed that I tend to wake up at about 6am. So I woke up at 6am this morning and thought, oh, I wonder, I wonder how the cricket's going. Let's see, let's see if Australia won. And I saw that it was it was still ongoing. They needed about 90 to win. There were four or five wickets left in hand. Rishabh Pant's set. So I quickly got up. I, I need to get some work done. I'm a little bit behind on some work. So cracked over my work laptop, started doing some work, had the ABC commentary next to me. And just as the morning has descended, I've been doing less and less work as the cricket got more and more exciting uh, until they won. It was fantastic. And I think... It's the first, just put it into context, you think like no Kohli, no Bumrah, no Shami, no, it was Ash, I don't think Ashwin was playing in this game, no, no Jadeja. No. So it's basically their entire bowling attack wiped out and their best batsman. And they're playing at the Gabba, where Australia last lost in 1988 to an iconic West Indies team. So they've basically won almost every test there, or certainly been unbeaten there for over 30 years. And with this depleted team needing plus 300 on the last day against an Australian bowling attack that we'll speak about in a second a bit more, but most people would say is one of, if not the best in the world. It's incredible. And of course, they were bowled out for almost single figures in the first test. So it's an amazing turnaround. One of one of the great series. No, no, it is absolutely phenomenal, isn't it? Um, but it's a weird one because, you know, I've never hugely warmed to this India team while Kohli's been captain. Kohli's quite a, He's a hard to love figure if you're not if you're not Indian, um, but he's obviously a very good batsman, and he's I think for me anyway, Kohli being so good and so dominant has maybe not really considered the versus India team as much as I should have. Like when they were um, in England the summer before last, um, and their bowling attack was clearly wonderful, like a brilliant seam attack, and Kohli was carrying the bat and Pajara as well. You know, they were clearly a good team. But I thought, to be honest, lazily, as soon as Coley went home from this tour, I thought, that's it, surely. Especially they'd just been bowled out for such an awful total. I thought, how is their batting going to stand up without their leader against this really good Australian bowling attack? So I'm I'm stunned that they've managed to pull this off. It's particularly as they've been dropping like flies. They've lost that incredible scene attack as it's gone through. But the new Indian bowlers have just come in and stood up. And I have to say... Um, Washington, watching his batting in India's first innings, it was so good. Like watching the part, I don't know if you watched the highlights, Rob. I have. The, they were playing some beautiful shots for that partnership. Um, like really good cricketing shots, standing up to the Australian bowlers. And yeah, it's just, it's a really good result. And if I was Tim Payne, I'd be really starting to get a bit anxious about my position now. And I think if it wasn't for the fact that he's kind of Langer's pet project, Langer's fully backed in, um, he'd be in real trouble right now because he's not scoring that. He doesn't score that many runs. And as a captain, he's letting good positions and series go. Um, so, yeah, not great for Australia, but incredible for India. 
Yeah, he, he dropped a couple of uh, catches as well in the last test. I think he missed the stumping today. I may, I think I read between the lines that happened at, at one point during the he day. He dropped a very straightforward catch in India's first innings as well that would have broken that big partnership that saved India a lot earlier. It wasn't a hard one. It was just slightly high. And he almost didn't like, and it came off the high off Washington's bat, and it Payne just sort of half jumped, and it just you know grasped it with one hand. Whereas actually, it would have been a really simple take if he'd just gone with two hands. And it's almost like he didn't realise that he'd edged it. But again, a simple chance, important chance he put down. So he's not keeping particularly well. Yeah, you think you think they're going to give him the yeah he'll get the ashes at home. I'd be very surprised if that is if they sack him before that happens. But I mean, if he loses to to us at home, then obviously that would be curtains. To be completely honest, as an England fan, I hope they keep him because if they got rid of him, they'd be giving the captaincy back to Smith. And the rules of narratives and, you know, Hollywood stories and that, Smith returning as captain against the hated England will just score 10 centuries. So I'd much rather an out-of-form under pressure, Tim Payne was captain, to be honest, for our series. I also would rather be having Tim Payne in their batting order than someone like Alex Carey, who I rate more highly as a batsman. So stay in, Tim, from, from my perspective. Yeah. And on captains, I wonder if India would be tempted to give the test captaincy to Rahane. He's fulfilled his duties admirably. He seems a calmer presence. It feels like he puts less pressure on his players because... I don't know, Coley's quite intense and he does demand high standards, uh, but sometimes, I, I think that's a good thing in many ways, but I wonder if that sometimes has a detrimental effect to having Rahani as captain and just having Coley there as floating gun for hire. Team talisman, without having to be captain, I'd, I'd be tempted to go down that route, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, not, not sure there'll be many people queuing up to tell him. Yeah. Give <laughs> the captaincy to someone else. Virat, <laughs> um, we just think you're a bit too intense, mate. So if you want to go away and work on that, and for now, it's all right. you're staying in the team. That's all good. But um, yeah, Ajinka is going to be captain. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be in the room. I think everything's thrown. Yeah. One. Um, well, we never know. Curly's just had a baby. Might have chilled him out a bit. Men get a bit, bit of perspective. So who knows? I mean, that I have seen that happen. Shaking aside, I mean, different sport, granted, but. Danny Kerr, the rugby player, after he had a kid, was transformed as man, as player. He just stopped being an idiot. Um, and so maybe, Coley's not an idiot, but perhaps having a having a kid would, would, would mellow him out a bit. Um, we'll see. And of course, they're coming to the UK this very summer. So it'll be interesting to see how they get on. I, I would, at this stage, I would say, I think England will win that series because I think it's different for some of these Indian players who've done so well, batting on flat decks in Australia where it's not, seeming and swinging particularly compared to in England where I think it undoubtedly would nibble around a bit more and I, I think with our superb seam options across the board I think we'd have a little bit more a bit more luck and they have they have really struggled the last couple of times they've come here we've recorded some pretty resounding victories against them and so well, despite this amazing series result I, I'd be confident in the week in the summer. One, um, one factor as well that we should think about in this series just gone with India Australia is obviously India have had, you know, huge amounts of injuries and it's incredible what they've done to keep going, particularly on the bowling front. But also, I think the Australian bowling attack has looked increasingly tired as the series has gone on. Like, you can see, as India have chased us down, admittedly on a flat deck, Cummins has still bowled well, but starts going around the park, Hazelwood's toiled away. Whereas, 
at least the Indian bowlers, they, they've looked fresh because they keep having new ones coming off the conveyor belt. And so they're maybe very green and very new, but they've still done a pretty solid, like, admirable job. Um, whereas the Australian bowlers haven't rotated at all throughout the series, apart from Cameron Green coming in. Um, and he doesn't bowl, he only bowls a few overs. So that might have been a factor as well, actually, in them chasing down this huge total. And they did well in England because they, they did rotate their bowlers. Yeah, the Siddle played some tests, didn't play others, and I do think there is something England have. We're blessed with options. So, you know, Curran and Wokes can into the exchange. Anderson and Broad, Archer and Wood. There are there are different combinations you can play, and I think that I think increasingly as the amount of cricket that's played ever more increases as limited overs cricket, franchise cricket. There's a lot of demands on players that you're having more options in your bowling armory and your squad is is a great blessing. I guess they have got quality, like that, that, those first four, you know, Hazelwood, Stark, Cummins and Lyon, that's a quality four. And I guess it's difficult sometimes to rotate away from that, particularly at home, when you really do back them and their records. But yeah, maybe they're, maybe they're slightly regret that now. Well, it's happened. I mean, I couldn't quite believe that that series has ended as, as it did, um, but it has done. India have beaten Australia in Australia for the second time in a row which is quite quite some achievement. England, on to them, on the verge of beating Sri Lanka, in Sri Lanka for the second time in a row, one would feel they won the first test pretty comfortably, although there's a little bit of a wobble at the end. So one nil up in, in the series, one to play. I believe that starts on Friday. Michael, give us a, you know, your quick summary of, of how, how you think England did and where we are. Um, in terms of... Batting, obviously, it's really good to see Joe Root in runs. I don't really buy into the whole, it's just Sri Lanka, because it's a live series, one thing, which is really important for Root to have made a big score in a live series when it actually matters, when it's on the line. Um, it doesn't prove that he's got over his problems against pace, but, you know, runs are really, I think runs are really good for his confidence, and I'm really pleased for him. Um, the only issue is... <sighs> This is against the Sri Lanka spinners who aren't as good as the India spinners. And our openers look pretty all at sea in both innings. Um, Dom Sibley in particular, I'm slightly worried about because he looked poor against spin in the home summer last year um, in in English conditions. He didn't see any release shots against Yusir Shah, got bogged down. And he didn't look particularly good in either of his short innings in this first test. So I'm hoping he comes away and, you know, Works. He's worked on it, and he does come back with something. Dan Lawrence, I thought, looked great though. I thought he just came straight into it, um, and he's surely going to be in contention now for a spot against India if he does well in the second test. Besto did fine, but he's always he's got a good. He averages forty something against spin, and he only averages twenty something against pace. So, you know, didn't really learn anything new, but he did all right. But I thought um, one surprise was Butler kept particularly well. Like I thought Butler did a pretty good job with the gloves. Um, considering you know very little practice and you know coming straight into this test in difficult conditions, he did well. And then with the bowling, Leach plugged away and he got better as the game went on, which is good. Best got a very all sorts kind of five for in the first innings, but maybe that's his skill. Maybe he's good at getting batsmen to play bad shots. Um, my worry is that they weren't either of them able to build consistent pressure, land the ball consistently in good areas, and. You do really need them to be doing that by the time we play India um, because you can't really bowl a bad ball and over. Like, that's why Adrian Rashid didn't succeed in Test cricket the first time around, right? So, 
I'm very pleased we won. There's, there's still quite a lot of stuff to think about and we reflected it, didn't he? He said we're a work in progress. I agree with most of that. Really, yeah, great double hundreds and it's the start of a big year. Of course, we're playing India away and then at home and then the Ashes. So, and there's New Zealand are coming as well. So we've got some really tough series coming up. This is probably the easiest one at the start of the year. So great for him to get a big score in before all that begins. And yeah, I, I think this could be a defining year for him, certainly as England captain, potentially as an England player. And mm-hmm. so to start with such a commanding knock, very encouraging. Uh, yeah, I thought Lawrence looked superb. On the openers, Sibley, <laughs> Sibley didn't look great. I'm not going to lie. Uh, it did look a little bit concerning. Like he, he was struggling. Crawley, I felt he just got out, maybe he's playing the wrong the wrong shot. He didn't look like he was kind of all at sea or really, you know, I didn't look like any kind of technical issues or anything like that. Not that I can tell Don Sibley how to bat, um, given my atrocious record at a far, far, far lower standard than, than he's ever played. Um, but you kind of worry whether he, he looked like he was like technically struggling versus Crawley, he's got all the shots. He looks like a very comfortable player, just wrong playing a cover drive against the spinner the left arm spinner that's spinning away from you that's just asking to nick it to slip and so shot selection there not not brilliant but I think he'll be okay in terms of in terms of the bowling thought the seamers bowled very well really broad in particular I hardly went for a run in that second innings picked up three in the first innings with with the spinners Leach basically hasn't played cricket for like a year it was yeah. his first competitive game in basically a year. And by the end of the game, he was bowling quite well. So it wasn't too worried that he didn't bowl particularly well in the first innings, all for the first half of their second innings. By the end, he really started to, to bowl nicely. And, you know, I, I think he'll still be okay in the, in the second test, not expecting him to set the world alight. But come the India tests, I think he'll be bowling much better. Two test matches under his belt, a lot of overs under his belt. And, I expect him to do to do fine. I don't think he's going to set the world alight, but I think he'll do fine. Bess, it's quite hard to know what to make of him. He's two prominent five-wicket halls away in South Africa last year and away in Sri Lanka this last week have been bad batting, not good bowling, basically. And so it's quite hard to make a judgment on him. Like, he's doing okay, but he doesn't look that good. And so it's quite difficult to know at what point does... Like, you know, where, where do you... Do we do you just keep picking him while he's doing okay, knowing that I mean I don't think he's going to be that good a long-term option for England. He just doesn't really spin it that much. So I read a good piece by one of our favourite writers, Jonathan Liu, Rob, um, and it was about Bess and it was about how his career's had a lot of up and downs, and also about his bowling style. And it was basically saying yes, a lot of his wickets are bad batting, but does that mean it's bad bowling, or does Bess have a particular skill that means? It encourages batsmen to attack, but then it's hard to attack against. And he talks about Bess's high action and the fact that he doesn't get much spin, like you said, but he does get a lot of bounce and kind of top spin, which means very easy to defend against. But if you try and attack it, that's when batsmen come unstuck. And so the fact that Bess bowls from all sorts, he and he encourages batsmen to attack, he also encourages false shots. And so it was kind of making the argument, which Jonathan Liu does. He always tries to take the alternative view and sometimes it's wrong, sometimes it's right. But it's it making the argument that not, it's not always just the batsman's fault or like the batsman's credit when he when he gets it wrong. So, yeah, I agree. But it's very hard to know what to make of Bess when he bowls in such a variety of stuff um, yeah. and, and doesn't turn it particularly. I do think kind of, 
in terms of, I'm, you know, it's, I'm guilty of it. I'm always thinking ahead to the Australia series. I'm always thinking who do they want? That's probably the one spinner in Australia. And while Leach is bowling better and better, and I actually hope it's Leach in the end because I think he's a better spinner, I can see them liking the idea of Bess in Australia because he can bat a bit, he's a good fielder, and he'll probably be able to bowl you know, quite a lot of overs in Australia and he's a fighter, he's a scrapper, which will suit that. And that's kind of what I'm thinking there, thinking about Bess. Well, we're, we're not going to win in Australia based off one of Jack Leach or Don Bess bowling us to victory. It's, simple, it's as simple as that. Like, it's going to be the seamers like Archer, if he hits great form, that kind of thing, he's going to, um, if you're hoping maybe Archer would in particular bowl brilliantly and lead us to victory in terms of taking the wickets and some of those young batsmen really come to the fore and score runs, lots of runs. So for me, I'm not too <laughs> fussed which one, which one plays when it comes to in England or in Australia. And I think in India, they, they both play. Ultimately, you know, I remember you WhatsApp me saying you're a little bit worried that our spinners didn't look great, but we know they're not great. They're like six out of 10 bowlers. And they've sort of bowled six out of ten, and I mean they both took fivers, and we won the game. So I, I don't think you can ask much more of them for now. And they they now get they'll get four tests in India. I think they certainly should, and still got one to go in Sri Lanka. So they've got now five tests coming up in a row. And how they do in that is really in their hands. And maybe one of them will surprise us, or both of them will surprise us. Would but, you bring a third spinner in for this final test against Sri Lanka ahead of the India test? Would you bring in Marine? Is is he now available again post COVID? He's back in the squad. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I. I'm. Um, yes. I. I would. I'd play him instead of Curran, who did bowl quite well, by the way. But I just think he did fine. It's not. It's not his conditions, and he got a golden duck, which wasn't. Which, which wasn't um, yeah. fortunate. But he's. I think we we looked a little bit like we had a bit of a long tail, and so Moeen will no, fix that. Well, no, but he's he scored a few test hundreds. You know, put him at Moeen at seven doesn't feel outrageous. Neither does Curran at seven, to be fair, but I feel he's probably on slightly stronger batsman. So, yeah, yeah I think I'd play a third spinner, play Moeen, see how he does, and then on to India, where I said earlier, in just earlier, that I think we'll beat them in in England. I'm very confident we're going to lose in India, though. I hope it... I'm not confident that we're going to win. I am hopeful that it won't be an absolute battering. You know, you'd you want it to be competitive, right? Um, we do not want it to be like the last time we were away in India, which was really bad. I mean, that really killed off Alistair Cook as the test captain. And it was very demoralising. So I'm hopeful that, you know, maybe we can win one of the first two tests, make it slightly interesting. Root can have a good series, which I think he probably will with the bat. Definitely. He, he looked fantastic. The way he was sweeping was amazing. And to be honest, if he goes in with that kind of form and scores big runs, we're not going to get rolled. Because if you've got a batsman, he's consistently scoring big hundreds you're always going to stay in the game. My worry so, is, if it starts badly against India, the pressure will get to root, and then you'll see it in his batting. That's the yeah. worry. I, I don't think it will start too badly. I'm, I'm fairly relaxed. I imagine what, four series will lose what? 2-1 maybe? The prospect of Dom Sibley against their spinners is slightly worrying. Um, but hopefully he goes away, works hard, proves us wrong. Um, I mean, but we'll see. I don't think it will often spin as much. Like it was particularly towards the end of that match, like it was really spinning. Um, and then Endel Denny is, is a good bowler. So I think while they might be better spinners on paper, I don't think the challenge will be that much bigger, that much more of a step up per se. I'd uh, say so yeah. I'm, not, not I'm not holding my breath for an iconic series where Sibley scores three centuries, but uh, I don't think it's going to be all the more exposing than it already is against like a, an adequate, certainly an Embledenio, like a, a good Sri Lankan spinner and a ve- very 
bowler-friendly pitch. I mean, this one coming out is probably going to be one of the hardest to bat on from a when facing spin bowling perspective there's going to be because look, they were saying it because it's at the same ground. The prepared wicket just along from the one they played on in this last game already looks very dry. So mm-hmm. come day four, day five, it'll be, yeah. Let's see. It starts on Friday, I think. Yes, um, it, it does. So uh, we'll obviously, at the end of that match, we'll do a nice little sort of debrief on the series and how we think, yeah, following a second test match what that means for England going to India and the rest of a bumper year of test cricket for England but um, today we've we've spoken about some very exciting cricket um, but a little bit before Christmas we caught up with Steve Eskenazi the Middlesex captain and so uh, yeah we've it kind of taken a little while to get to the point where I've been able to release it um, but after a bit of editing there was a few you might hear a couple of scratchy bits in the background Oh, I think someone was tapping a pen. I'm blaming Michael, but it might have been Steve. Definitely Steve. We'll, we'll, we'll blame him. But he, he's been in Australia this summer playing grade cricket in Sydney. Um, and we caught up with him about his career. Really interesting how he became a, a professional cricketer, his time at Middlesex. Uh, and yeah, so this is what he had to say. A- any thoughts, Michael, before before we dive in? No, just a, a lovely guy, wasn't he? And really generous with his time. So I hope everyone enjoys. Here it is. Good morning, Steve. How are you? You're in Australia at the moment. The weather's looking nice outside. Morning, guys. Yeah, very well, thanks. Yeah, um, I think I'm probably the luckiest county cricketer on the circuit at the moment, being able to come back to Sydney and uh, spend the summer playing at Sydney Cricket Club. But I'm living about oh, two and a half minute walk from Bondi Beach at the moment. So, yeah, not to, not to rub it in, but it's worked out quite nicely for me this summer. I had a little look at your stats, Steve. You're doing all right, averaging 87. How's it going? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a welcome breakout here, to be honest with you. You've got these rock-hard pitches, literally not a blade of grass on it. You've got a kookaburra ball and it's about 38 degrees. And obviously these blokes have worked all week. Um, so it makes a bit of a change from running in facing someone like Ollie Robinson, you know, who might have got you out maybe nine or ten times in the last three games you played against him on a green one at Radlett. So I'm trying to cash in while I can, knowing that that stuff's looming and comes around quicker than you think. So the reason I found your stats, actually, because you were mentioned in a Guardian article and it, the Guardian article is basically about how COVID stopped this massive talent swap that always happens every year. where you know, English pros go over to Australia, Australia pros come over to here. Um, and can you talk just a little bit about like the benefits you think of going over to Australia, how you found it and just why, why, why it's so good to do? Yeah, massively. I mean, I'm probably a good person to talk to about because I've been doing it for about seven or eight seasons now. Um, obviously, slightly different for me because my childhood club in Perth was a really easy sell. So I went straight to England after a few years of first grade cricket there. Um, and then it was easy for me to go back and play. And obviously, not being classed as an overseas player at these clubs um, makes a massive difference too because obviously every club can only have one. So I slot in as a bit of a golden ticket really because it means that a club can have... For example, my team last year had Nick Gubbins and myself came over and the year before had Zach Crawley and myself come over. So it's a bit of a two for one deal. Oh, I think, you know, it depends on where you are in your career, obviously, and what your skill is. But I think for a young batsman like myself, it's a real no brainer to get out there and play as much cricket as possible. Barring some major technical change that you might want to work on with your batting coach back at your county. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense to come out here and, and, you know, first and foremost, grow up, you know, 
a lot of people who are living at home or have only just been to university, you know, to come out and experience something a little bit different, fend for yourself um, is the first thing that I think you really benefit from. And then obviously the cricket, different conditions, different players. And, you know, it's super competitive here. Everyone here who plays in the top grade of whatever state you're in, they all think they can play, you know, first class cricket by the end of the summer. So they're all running in hard, they're spraying you, they're bumping you, you know, the standard's really good. So I think you're gaining on all fronts, really. How, how does the standard compare, would you say, to something like the, the Middlesex Prem club cricket? Which I imagine you must have played a little bit when you haven't been playing for the Middlesex or something in, in a summer. Absolutely, yeah. I played a lot of Middlesex Premier League cricket my first three seasons. I don't think I missed a game. Um, it's really interesting. The challenges are probably on par, but for very, very different reasons. I think if you come to Australia, you've got obviously the heat to contend with, um, but also you've got you know, what I would consider like a lot of sort of second 11 style players running in and the standard of bowling is, you know, just below first class and standard of wickets is really good. So the standard of cricket is brilliant. Um, so you have to be up to that. But funnily enough, people always think, oh, well, the standard of, of club cricket in England must be dreadful. But I'm, I've played enough of both to know that I think I would take a bloke bowling 82 mile an hour um, on a good wicket with me with a kookaburra over here in 34 degrees than a lad who's just lobbed in off the back of 12 pints last night, bowling him an off stump, nipping him both ways with the keeper up on a drizzly day at Stanmore Creek Club. So, you know, both are, are extremely difficult, but for very, very different ways. Well, that, I mean, that, that gives me hope as someone who, maybe not 12 pints the night before, but will certainly be bowling some filthy sort of 65 mile an hour dobbly seamers. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe one day I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll hit the heights of, um, of Prem cricket rather than sort of the Div 4, Div 5. Trash. Oh, my worst nightmare. You'd probably, I'd give you four balls and I'd be in strife. Um, brilliant. And one quick other thing before before getting on some other questions. When, when you logged on, you had your Zoom name was Big Beak. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, well, it's interesting you are, actually, because I, I, I guess I've been asking the same question for a number of years now. Some people think they've got like quite a big nose, but I, I personally just don't see it. Um, I see my nose is very, you know, symmetrical in proportion, but lots of people and, and well, by lots, I mean, everyone I've ever met has, has not really seen it the same way. So I'm still trying to figure it out, actually. I think that's the life of a professional sportsman, isn't it? Like, as soon as you go into a dressing room, there's going to be something identified about you and that's going to become a nickname. And then if there's nothing, if you've got a bit of a bland character, you know, you've got a bland face, they just add a E onto the end of your name. 100%. I mean, if you're not getting abused about something, there's something wrong. If I leave a day of cricket and, and someone hasn't got stuck into me about 20 different things, I'm, I'm probably going out to them and being like, always busy, you're right, everything all right at home. I mean, you went really yourselves today. So, you know, they like to bring you down a peg, but I think it's all, you know, in good nature and everyone's got your best interests at heart, really. We're jumping ahead a little bit here because I'm going to ask you about Middlesex a bit later. But, you know, since you've become Middlesex captain, I'm guessing that, you know, good natured, good natured abuse hasn't, hasn't toned down at all. <laughs> well you know what i actually think it's the hallmark of a strong dressing room um you know and there'll be probably some people listening to this that might disagree but i think if it's done in in you know a tasteful way and as i said you know that your teammates actually fundamentally have your back then i think those styles of inside jokes they can actually bring a side closer together so any side that i plan and also as a county cricketer you're spending six days a week with these blokes for six months a year so you're going to want to make each day a little bit of fun because as i said if facing blokes nipping around everywhere is not fun you've got to find that in the dressing room somehow so we do have a good mix of that in middle sex and i think it's going to probably continue yeah absolutely and i can imagine as well with the covid i mean playing the playing last season it must have been even more intense right spending even more time with each other becoming a tight-knit bubble i guess 
Yeah, it was mad. But I think the beauty of last year was obviously a lot of young players got opportunities, but they were really thrust into an environment where they got to know all the senior players, you know, far faster than someone like myself would have ever got the opportunity to do because not only were they in the side when maybe they wouldn't have been based on overseas players or opportunities, um, but basically they were locked up in a hotel or a team room with these guys. So it was an invaluable experience for those guys. And I guarantee that's going to, you know, fast track some development from, from definitely a few guys in our dressing room. Definitely. Should we just go back to the beginning a bit for you, Stevie? Because you mentioned that you played a lot of your young cricket when you were living in Australia. But could you tell us a bit about like when you first realised you fell in love with the game and how you got started with cricket back at the beginning? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I actually started sort of my cricket journey when I was living in the UK before I moved to Australia. So I think my first kind of community club was Fair Oak Cricket Club based in Hampshire and then went on to play under 10s and under 11s for Hampshire before I moved to Perth. Um, which is sort of an interesting fact that not too many people know. Um, and then when I moved to Australia, actually, and I'll get a barrage of abuse for saying this if anyone from Middlesex hears this, but I, I really, I was a footballer. I enjoyed playing football and cricket was just my summer sport. But when I moved to Perth, uh, Australia in general, they didn't really have much time for soccer as it is here. So quickly that faded away and I picked up hockey and cricket. And basically up until the age of about 18, um, I mixed between the two, you know, in the summer I'd play my cricket and the winter I'd play my hockey to a decent standard and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I might have the odd hit in the winter, but basically I only started taking cricket really seriously from about the age of 17 when I started playing grade cricket um, and then played my age groups at Western Australia from, you know, under 15s, under 17s, under 19s. But basically when I was 18, the year before I started playing for Middlesex, I was still playing hockey for um, Western Australia under 21 level so I definitely didn't have you know being a professional cricket on my mind at 17 I was just kind of enjoying playing a good standard of both sports and going to university at the time and then I think there was a bit of a watershed moment maybe the back end of 2012 when I was like okay if I want to play sport for a living it's, it's not going to be hockey I'm probably well I've got no pace so that was never really going to be an option for me um, and, and opportunities started to pop up around England in terms of cricket. So that's sort of how that started. In terms of playing two different sports quite late on, so to a high standard, I know there's been a lot of research around that kind of thing of playing multiple sports because it helps develop more rounded skill sets to if all you do is bat or all you do is bowl and you're not playing football or, or hockey or whatever, uh, it can it actually has a detrimental effect on your cricket. But hockey in particular seems to be a sport that a number of younger English batsmen were play, have been playing to quite a high standard. So your likes of um, Tom Banton, Bairstow, Pope, Butler have all said, yeah, that they feel their hockey helped their cricket. Would you say the same for yourself? And what in particular do you reckon uh, the hockey helped you with? Yeah, I think actually the first thing that I take from playing two sports was it actually kept me interested in cricket for a lot longer than a lot of my peers. If I think about guys that I played for Western Australia with at, you know, 14, 15, 16. There's probably six or seven of the guys when I was 15 who weren't even playing cricket at 17. Because like you said, all they were doing is batting and bowling. So not only were all they doing is just one skill, but they were actually falling out of love with the game because they would do it all winter and all summer. And we all know that cricket can grind you into the day. You know, it's a tough game. So I think having that respite and having a few months where I didn't think about it, having some fun running around, playing a completely different sport was, was great for my cricket. And then sort of added technical skills. I think, I, I mean, 
one thing that all those guys do really well and something that, you know, I hope that, that I try and do well too is, is sweeping and reverse sweepings and, and sort of using your wrists a little bit better. Um, it's probably only something that I've realized helped me after being a professional for a few years. Um, I just sweep more than everyone else. And I think it's just because the whole winter I was basically down in a crouch position, um, practically playing sweeps for 78 minutes, 70 or 80 minutes a weekend. Um, but I just think that timing nature, that aspect, that anticipation, sort of everything that goes with playing a movement-based sport or a tactic-based sport um, definitely comes to light through one way or another. But yeah, all those guys who work with Banton, prime example, you can easily see that. The way he sweeps with his wrists is definitely someone who's played a lot of hockey. And do you think it's particularly helpful in the one days and the T20s having this incredibly flexible wrist, being able to score 360 around the wicket? Yeah, and I think it's probably something you don't realise. Like you said, you, well, when I was my formative years of my technique, I was obviously spending four months playing hockey. So it probably naturally came in. I don't ever think that I walked out and said, oh, I want to use my wrists better here. But I probably just, for the first month of the cricket season, had come off so much hockey that naturally that was something that I did. And I probably only now do I realise that maybe I score in areas that traditional players who grew up playing, you know, maybe football or, or just, just cricket don't really score in. So... I do see myself lucky in that respect, but there's also probably a lot of guys who have benefited from, you know, grinding their way through technical work from 15, 16, 17, 18, but I definitely wouldn't have changed the way that I've, you know, got to where I am now. So just going back to 2012 then, Stevie, so, you know, you're one year into uni and you thought, okay, if I go for cricket here, I can make a career out of it. So you decided to move to England to pursue it. I mean, that's a big decision. Um, Can you just tell us a bit about that and then how you kicked on from there? Yeah, sure. Well, I'd love to say it was just my decision and I thought, you know, let's get over there and crack on. But basically what happened was in the December of 2012, I played in West Australia's under-19s team um, and we had a national championship down in Adelaide where my team had like, you know, Ash Agar, Will Bazisto, Matt Kelly, all guys who have played a lot of um, first-class cricket at the moment. And I had a really good tournament. I think I was second leading run scorer to Travis Head, um, Got got hundred, got eighty, and another eighty in about four or five games, and made the Australian under 19s team of the championship. So because there, it wasn't a World Cup year under 19s, they picked kind of a representative team rather than a team to go and train or play. So I left there in December 2012, thinking, you know, you beauty, this is outstanding. I'm going to go back and sign a contract. I remember I had a conversation with the high performance manager, I think it was at Western Australia, a guy called Dave Fitzgerald who said, make great tournament, go back to grade cricket, score another 100 or two, and you'll play the next second 11 game for Western Australia. And I thought, ripper. So I went back um, and actually got back-to-back hundreds the first two games. So I'm sitting there in January of 2013 thinking, perfect. You know, cricket's gone really well for me the last 18 months. I've got a lot of grade runs. I've played well in the pathway levels. Um, I'm sure I'm going to get a rookie contract here in Western Australia and I'm just going to crack on. And All my friends and all my family were there. So there's no reason for me to look elsewhere. Uh, and basically I got called into a room and they said, oh, they said something about my batting technique or something. And, and I will never forget, he pulls up, one of the um, analysts pulls up the screen and it's, you know, video footage of me making a hundred and he's starting saying like, you scored too many runs through third man or something, you know, we didn't rate that. Or so, and I was like, I've got 139 out. What are you talking about here? But basically, they went on to say there was no room for me in the West Australian squad at the time. They had signed a guy called Tom Triffett um, to come over and be a second wicketkeeper, and I was a bit more of a wicketkeeper back then. 
Um, and they said, you know, all the best, play grade cricket and we might chat to you in some stage in the future and we might not. So that was, you know, very disappointing considering I, I didn't think I had delusions of grandeur at the time. I thought I had a pretty decent understanding of where I sat in the pathways with the guys in my age group. But that was a bit confusing to me. And basically, as soon as that happened, I went back, chatted to my parents about it and started to look at opportunities in the UK. Initially, I was going to go back to Hampshire and play second eleven cricket and club cricket, you know, not even on any style of contract, just go and play maybe at Syncross or something because I had family friends there and just train at the AGS Bowl and see what came of it because of my links there. But basically, my really good family friends are Chris and Robin Smith and Paul Terry, who was my batting coach at the time. And I just said to those guys, look, I know it's a bit of a um, long shot, but basically here are my grade stats, here are my under-19 statistics. I'm a passport holder. I can come and play as a local. Do you guys, you know, you had a lot of time in the game. Three of them would have played for 20-plus years. Um, do you know anyone that might be of use? Um, and basically, almost instantaneously, I got an email from Angus Fraser and Richard Scott, who had both played with um, PT and the Smith brothers, saying, hi, mate. Yeah, looks like a good player. Uh, we value your recommendation. And we are looking for someone to put John Simpson and Adam Rossington under a bit of pressure. Um, would you like to come over on a two-year sort of scholarship-style agreement where I just got a little bit of expenses paid, lived with a family, um, and played league cricket up in northwest London for Stanmore? So, you know, it was surreal. Within the space of about six weeks, I had dreams of playing for Western Australia. And then all of a sudden, I was at Lords, And it's looking back on it now, it was, you know, it went so, so quickly. But I wouldn't have changed any, any of it now. I've had an unbelievable journey. So you were coming over as a keeper batsman to put pressure on John Simpson because because I was going to ask like the keeper's kind of gone now, isn't it, Stevie? Because I don't know if you've heard of yeah. him called um, Canterbury captain, but I I have I have played you as a keeper on that game because you've got the little symbol that says you keep a bit. And you're a very useful player to fit in actually as a batsman who can also keep a bit. But um, do you not really do that much anymore? Like have you kind of in your head have you left that behind a bit? Actually. Um... It would be handy if you were on the selection panel for a few of the 100 ball teams going into the draft. You could just say, it's not <laughs> handy. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, ironically, if, if you told anyone in county cricket who had seen me wicket keep, um, that I came over to put pressure on John Simpson, who I think is arguably the best keeper in the country, um, I think they would probably find that quite funny. But I did, and I did really enjoy it. But I probably didn't understand, well, I definitely didn't understand the rigours of wicket keeping in England. Um, a... Technically, it's, it's unbelievably difficult with the wobbling ball and the pitches you play on and, and keeping up to, you know, seamers and B, the amount you do it. It's, it's unbelievable. So I take my hat off to guys who can bat consistently and wicket keep. I just think it is honestly the most difficult thing to do. Um, but that definitely was something I came over and enjoyed doing. And, and you know, it's still something I have in, in my armory and it's still something I do work on on the side, albeit, you know, not as much as my batting because I think, you know, if I'm going to, be a consistent player at first-class level and, and push for higher honours. I think it's going to be first and foremost as a batsman. But I do want to continue to try and make myself, you know, as attractive as I can to, to franchise sides and, and to Middlesex if, if necessary. So I still do work on my keeping and I'm still confident that if I went in to do um, a job, you know, one-day cricket or T20 cricket, that I could do it. Um, but the only time I've really kept at first-class level was the back end of 2017, uh, and, I, and I really enjoyed that too. But I, I think longevity as a four-day wicketkeeper batting in the top four or five, you don't see too many of those guys around. And I think there's probably good reason for that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because Paul Nixon, he spoke about 
how when he got his England call up quite old over in Australia, he was feeling really confident because his experiences in the past had been that he'd found wicketkeeping in Australia really easy compared to the subcontinent, obviously it's spinning and, and the heat, uh, and, but then also over in, um, in England, as you said, green pitches, standing up to seamers, ball wobbling around everywhere. And, and for him, he's Australia, from his experience, had been pretty much the easiest place to, uh, to wicketkeep, which I'd never really thought of as a, yeah, you kind of think about how it's different for batsmen, you know, in certain parts of the world, they might spin more, it might, whatever, and, and for bowlers as well. I probably wouldn't be able to take a wicket outside of the UK, but <laughs> but, but for wicket keepers, I, I always kind of in my head thought they can do it anywhere. Um, well, of course they can in one sense. Yeah, sure, it's really interesting. Um, I couldn't believe it when I first came over to the UK. I could not believe how difficult it was. I remember I think my first second team game that I kept at was at Hove, um, and I was keeping to Corey Collymore bowling down the hill. And I was honestly the least confident bloke in the ground that I'd be able to stop the ball, let alone catch it if he nicks it. Um, and, and sitting at first slip the last couple of years and watching someone like Simo, who really is you know, the best at, at what he does, I'm just in awe at how these guys go about it. It is just so, so much difficult. It's no doubt you know, challenging to bat in England um, compared to batting in someone like in Australia, um, if it's seeing me around and swinging around. But wicketkeeping is just phenomenally difficult. And to come out to Australia... Again, if you're fit enough and you're comfortable enough playing long days in the heat, then technically I do think it is far easier for those guys. So I think English wicketkeepers will always be, by nature of the you know difficulty of the skill there, should always be the best in the world, in my opinion. Yeah, that's it's interesting. We had, we had a bit of a weird slump for a bit in the mid-2000s where we were starting out lots of slightly average wicketkeepers. But I think that's because England, England selectors were going for this this dream ticket of someone who could keep brilliantly and also bat like Adam Gilchrist. Um, and that isn't always quite how it works. There are some excellent wicket keepers in England, but not always they can bring their batting to it as well. Yeah, it sort of coincided with the real change in the role of the wicket keeper in Test cricket specifically. And, and it was probably when Gilchrist was taking that number seven role to new heights. I think before that, if you think of guys like Jackie Russell, and you think of guys like Chris Reed, Jamie Foster, these guys. I mean, unbelievable glovemen. And they never really had an expectation to average over 30 with the bat because they were doing a job behind the stumps. But I think there, Adam Gilchrist, unfortunately, came in and you know not killed off that style of player, but definitely raised the bar in terms of expectation for a gloveman then. So I think, you know, England, rightly so, were looking for someone, obviously, end up being someone like Matt Pryor, who could do a job behind the stumps. Um, but fundamentally, was still a pretty important part of the top seven. Yeah, for sure. Um, in terms of yourself, then you, you come over to the UK again, and you you play your club cricket for Stanmore, Middlesex twos, and more and more we start to get appearances in the Middlesex first team. Then 2016 comes along, a great year for the county, great year for yourself. From from my point of view, as a not a Middlesex fan, but as a follower of county cricket, that's when your name started popping up on BBC Sport more and more. And obviously, the team had had a great year, winning winning the title. You score a couple of hundreds and some important with some important innings later in the season. How was that for you? Yeah, it was again surreal. Basically, there's a little bit of a backstory from um, the, the year before in 2015. I actually was at the end of my one-year contract, I think it was at the time, and I got called in by Angus Fraser and Richard Johnson, Richard Scott, um, and basically they said something along the lines of, you know, you've you've got the most runs in the second eleven throughout the country this year. We really value you at the club. 
but the, the team had just were second at the time or third maybe at the time of the championship in 2015 and they're a really strong squad they had a lot of good batsmen um at the time and they basically said something along the lines of we think you're a good enough player to play first class cricket which is awesome congratulations but we don't think it's going to be here at middlesex because we're too strong and i remember being like oh well i don't really have too many contacts here in the uk i'm not entirely sure where i'll go from here you know this is a bit of a blow this is similar to that conversation i had in western australia in 2012 but basically then i went and we'd made the second 11 championship final at radler against nottinghamshire and they had quite a good attack luke fletcher um carter uh, andy carter and matt carter both played and it was a good game and i managed to get 130 not out i think in that game in front of the coaches and the director of cricket and it just was you know stark reminder of how fast the game can change basically i got a phone call at the end of that evening saying hi mate i mean the dramatized slightly but remember we said you probably played your last game for Middlesex pack your bag you're at Lords tomorrow and there's a chance you're debuting against Yorkshire and I was like but you, you said last week I wasn't good enough to play I'm a bit confused so I went out there and I think I got four in the first innings and 26 in the second innings and basically then signed on at the end of that year because they liked what they saw and then halfway through 2016 I was again feeling a little bit on the outer I hadn't played after I debuted the year before um I wasn't sure if they'd just given me a bit of a pity contract, basically, over how well I did at the back end of the previous year in second eleven cricket. Um, and I just saw what am I doing here? And then I got the opportunity because Compo got picked for England um, and managed to go out on, you know, a very placid wicket for my first, my second game against Lancashire. It's a good attack, but unbelievably flat wicket. I think they made 590 declared and we made 500. And that was the game which seems miles away considering some of the scores we've seen over the last little while. And then took confidence from that game and, and went into the next game at Yorkshire against Yorkshire at Scarborough and managed to get 160 there, which is probably still to date my, my best innings. And, you know, things kicked on. And I think to be a part of, of what we did that year was incredible, albeit I think I was probably a little bit young to really appreciate because I hadn't had a bad game. I don't think I'd had a bad session on the cricket field for Middlesex first 11. I was surrounded by great domestic players, test players, guys who are at the peak of their powers. And, and I probably did take it for granted a little bit um, what we were doing there. And I, I think if that were to happen now off the back of some of the more difficult times I've had as a player, I think I probably would have cherished it. But but at the time it was just, you know, it was just what happened and I hadn't experienced anything else. So it was, it was incredible. It was amazing. I look, I look back on it with extremely fond memories, um, but I'm hoping it's, you know, not the pinnacle of my career. Otherwise, Oh, be a long 10, 15 years after that day. Well, so um, that figure about that final match of the 2016 season, Stevie. So we were at Warwick, me and Rob, and I think it was just before our final year of university. And a few of us from the cricket club travelled down to watch a couple of days of that game because, you know, it's just, why wouldn't you? It's the absolute, you know, thrilling climax. Um, but I've got a couple of mates who haven't forgiven me because I had work or something on the final day. So I persuaded everyone to go down the penultimate day. And I think the penultimate day was quite a slow one. There were two wickets all day, quite careful batting to set up a bit of a finale. And then obviously the next day, fireworks, everything happened. And I think my friend Freddie's come on this podcast a couple of times, hasn't really forgiven me for making him go to the penultimate day, not the final day. Um, I think actually there was a bit of drama because I think I remember us being two for naught maybe, or yeah, two for none. I think Ryan Sidebottom went bang, bang. Comp- Sterlo got out. And Compo got out and I was like, oh, goodness. And we were still probably 
30, 50 behind at this point. And I was thinking, who goes bang, bang here and we're five down, 40 behind, we're done. So Nick Govins and David Milan took us through the stumps that day. Um, and yeah, it obviously all kicked off the back end of, of the next day, but it was an unbelievable experience. There, there are definitely some funny stories from that last day. Basically, oh, yes. well, I don't know if I can, you know, say that what happened on that day was largely down to me, but basically we were out there and the game was looking like it was going to peter out for a draw. Um, were you there, Rob, or were you there, Mark? Which one were you, were uh, you there? Was, um, I, I, I remember following it in the back of a, a taxi coming home from a family holiday um, <laughs> with Toby Rowling James taking those wickets at the end. So, um, no, yeah. but I, I remember following the game quite closely while, while on holiday and then, and then on the way home. And I'd left just before the final day. So, again, I was following this while working at a pub at the Student Union <laughs> on my phone in the back, in the back of the room, basically not serving customers. <laughs> well, basically what happened was, you know, the game was peaking out to a draw in the middle session because we were maybe four down, pitch had flattened out. We were 50, 60 ahead. And I went out there and I don't think I've ever batted so badly in my entire life. I think I was naught off about 27 balls. And I just remember Andrew Gale walking up to me being like, what are you doing? Like, if we draw this game, Somerset win the championship. Like, I just have no idea what you're doing. But I didn't really know what I was doing either. I was 21 years old with probably the biggest crowd I'd played in front of, probably the biggest crowd in four-day cricket for the last few years, really, on TV. And I just didn't really know what I was doing. And so basically, he storms off the pitch. And I didn't know any of this until after the game. I remember being told this about 3.30 a.m. in a Camden nightclub. Um, he said they burst into... James Franklin was in the bathroom, having a bathroom break. And Andrew Gale stormed into the rooms and said something like, what the F is Eskenazi doing out there? Like, do you guys want to make a game of this? This is ridiculous. Tell that bloke to get on with it. And they were like, well, actually, you know, what do you, how do you want to play this? Because we're pretty happy with the way we're playing here. We're pretty happy with the fact that we're undefeated this season. And if you guys want to make a play, let's make a play. And then that's when they came out and said 240, I think it was, in 40-odd overs. So basically, you need to score at 14 and over for the next... 10, 15 overs. And I remember just looking at David at the time and I was like, I don't really know what to do here. And I turned around to Andy Hodd, who's an absolute legend of a bloke. And I was like, what do I do here? And he said something to me like, mate, you've had a good year. You deserve this. Basically hit every other ball for four or six for the next 25 minutes, finish 80, not out. Um, and then the game will be back on in about an hour's time. And I just had never, ever experienced, seen, heard of anything like that in my entire life. But I was quite happy to oblige. It, it's a bizarre thing, isn't it? The kind of, it's almost con conspiracy to, you're colluding with the opposition almost in a way, to, to chuck, chuck on somebody who's going to throw up pies for you to hit the boundaries, so that then you declare, so they can sort of try and make a fist of it. I can't really imagine that happening in, in any other sport. Yeah, it's very strange. But actually, the more and more we spoke about that in that winter, it happens a lot, particularly in second division cricket, where there were these dead games where teams were like, well, it doesn't matter if we lose this game because we can't get relegated. But if we win this game, it's a huge positive. So actually, you hear of the odd person belting on 80 ball, 130 not out or something. And then someone will say, like, oh, that was lob ups. Um, and it is a bit strange. And I'll tell you, you didn't enjoy it. The MCC members did not enjoy that 45 minutes of play. Um, that they deemed that not really in the spirit of the game. I deemed that, you know, a, a carefully calculated 80 not out, putting away the bad ball, 
which I look back on quite fondly, but I guess that's just different opinions. Yeah, it's interesting that because I'm as an MCC member who's played a lot of MCC out matches which go exactly to that kind of tune where we kind of set up some farcically staged um, run chase for a school to try and have, have a go at winning the game. I'm, I'm surprised the MCC members weren't, weren't a fan of it because basically they're clubbed it all the time um, when playing, you know, whoever, whatever school to try and make some, some kind of game of it. And I did want to shout out, absolutely, I did want to shout out when they were abusing us so we ran through the long room. I did want to say something like, well, at least you're going to get two and a half hours an hour of exciting cricket. We could have just battered the day and everyone would have gone home. We would have finished third. Yorkshire would have finished second. Um, but basically, they, they got one of the most dramatic afternoons in county cricket history. So it is interesting. I sort of do understand, like you said, it is a very strange one and it, and it probably should happen very infrequently. But in situations like that where... There's just nothing on a draw and the wickets are too flat. I do think it makes for some exciting cricket. So I'm happy for it in the right circumstance. Also yeah. sounds like a particularly care- careful, calculated um, zero not out of 28 balls, Steve. The really funny thing about that was I got about 40 messages from my family and friends the next day being like, oh my goodness me, 78 not out in the final. You're a hero. Like They must be carrying you off the ground. <laughs> and I said, I like for a little while I rode my luck a little bit and then the, the footage came out of the lob ups and then I got about 40 messages being like what in the hell was going on on that cricket field just then it's this professional cricket in England <laughs> good. I like that a lot exactly, um, exactly. Uh, there's also yeah. something slightly funny I mean it's just because Somerset are perennial runners up you know Somerset they just keep being runners up to things and then it happened in this way I know you said it was sort of colluding Rob but there is something ironic I don't know about the fact that it happened to Somerset um, Definitely. yeah. Um, I mean, just, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't have a bit of a chuckle thinking about those boys watching it on, on Sky Sports late on that day, yeah. watching me belt into the stands off Adam Live practically off the second bounce, thinking, <laughs> What in the hell is going on here? Knowing that they're going to have to sit through the next hour and 45 minutes and someone that's not them is going to win the championship. So, yeah, tough for them. But that was, uh, that was the way it. And they should have won one more game earlier than that game, shouldn't they? <laughs> exactly. Um, so 2016, you know, won the championship. Since then, Middlesex have had a bit of a tough time. Is there anything you put that down to? And how would you kind of assess your own form the last few years and any plans to get Middlesex back up again next year? Yeah, it's a really... I mean, if you look at sport in general, not just cricket, but maybe football is the only one that doesn't really hold true to because of the money gets pumped in. But there's definitely eras. And basically, we had a really, really good mix of senior players. As I said, test players, old heads, James Franklin, Nick Compton, Sam Robson, um, Steve Finn, Tim Murtagh, Toby Rowan Jones had a brilliant year. Guys like Nick Gubbins came through, I came through, Harry Pobble came through. It was, it was the perfect mix that year. And sort of, I guess, what every county is looking for in their squad, that perfect harmony between youth and experience. And, and basically, at the end of that year, we just had a bit of an exodus. We had guys who dropped in form. We had guys who got picked for England. We had guys who moved to different counties. And there was just a bit of a shift in the momentum. And whenever I speak about those two years, the word momentum is all I use. Because basically, the back end of 2016, we rode our momentum the whole way through to that final day. I think we must have won four of the last six four-day games. And, and similarly, in 2017, we actually didn't play awful cricket until the last four weeks, five weeks of the season where I think we lost three of the last five. Um, and it, all it was was momentum. It was an extremely difficult thing to turn around when we got there. 
I mean, it would be remiss of me not to talk about the, the Arrow incident. Had yeah. we drawn that game like we were going to draw that game and had the umpire not docked us points for overrate, like you said he wasn't going to dock us points for overrate, we would still have been in the first division the following year. Not an excuse. We, we definitely didn't play well enough that year, but we actually genuinely didn't play poorly enough to get relegated. We sort of did get stitched up a little bit there. Steve, quick, quickly on that, I completely forgotten about that whole incident at the Oval with the with the crossbow. Um, what was what? I mean, what was that like being in the dressing room? I mean, I don't know. Uh, do you know? Did they ever get the bottom of who fired it, where that came from? It was so. It was mad, really. Basically, what happened was on the final day, the game was seriously petering out to a draw. I think we were five down, one hundred and eighty ahead at T or something. And they just said, right, you blokes bat for the next hour and then we'll shake hands and we'll get out of here. And I remember I was actually out. I'd got out earlier in the day and I was a runner for Nick Compton and him and John Simpson were batting. And I was at the non-strikers end while Compo was, you know, where the runner was. And I just remember Rory Burns was at mid-wicket and all we heard was something like a... And no one really... Everyone was a bit like, oh, what was that? It's a bit strange. don't know what's going on here. And then I think actually a ball got bowled. I think um, Gareth Batty bowled a ball and Burns looked around and he was like, what's this? And then I remember being about two or three metres away from it with umpire and we were both like, well, what's that? And then he pulls this thing out the ground and it's this jagged crossbow bolt with like all these razor sharp edges on it that had been fired over the stands. And we were all like, right, okay, that's obviously that's gone two inches into a rock hard cricket surface. If that had hit anyone, that would have been good night for them. And then after about five seconds, I just remember Ricky Clark sprinting off with his hands on his head as if he was about to be involved in a scene from 300 where crossbow bolts were going to block out the sun or something and we were all going to get impaled by them. But basically we didn't know what was going to happen. So we sprinted off and then the police came and they were treating it as a terrorist incident. And we were at the ground until about 9 p.m. that day. And they locked the whole of Vauxhall um, and then from a cricket point of view, basically they said to us, we're not going to dock you points for your over eight because what we were going to do is declare, go and bowl, you know, nine overs as you do in first off cricket really fast and spin and get our over eight back to naught and then leave without an over eight penalty. But because the game got abandoned, we, we, I distinctly remember sitting next to James Franklin, who was captain at the time. And he said, I'm only willing to, you know, abandon this game if you guarantee that we don't lose points for our over eight. Um, and it was verbally agreed to that that was going to be the case. And then there was a clerical error, um, administrative error, where they forgot to put that in the paperwork and we would dock two points for our over eight and we ended up getting relegated by one point. So, you know, people don't like it when I say that we shouldn't have got relegated that year, but the fact of the matter is we sh- definitely shouldn't have got relegated that year. Yeah, that that's tough to take, isn't it, really? I mean, mm. but I suppose such is, such is life sometimes things can just not go the way they should and, and be pretty unfair. And, oh, but that, I hadn't realised that about the over eight. That is, yeah, a bitter pill. Yeah. I mean, in really hindsight, bad. it wasn't a bad thing just because, you know, it did hammer home some of the things that we needed to really change around the culture of the club and around our performance. So, you know, in the long run, I think it would probably be a beneficial thing, the fact that we got that wake-up call. But, but at the time, it was extremely difficult to take, especially considering the following week, we rolled up to Taunton they had scratched the wicket with a fork about 150 times and the game went about a day and a half and nothing was said. So there were a few things towards the back end of that year. I obviously, you know, was keeping my head down. I was a youngster at the time, just not really knowing what was going on. 
But in hindsight, there were certainly a few things that definitely went didn't go our way. And like I said, I think that was just the momentum. When things are going for you in, in the sport of cricket, they are. And, and when they're not, it's extremely hard to come back from it. County cricket is an extraordinary world of low-key skullduggery, um, like Matt Somerset, you know, scratching up the pitch. And I he was speaking to um, various people we've had on our podcast, players who played in the 80s, 90s, through to yourself, present day. There's just loads of people just doing stuff that's kind of out of order, but just about okay enough to not really get them in trouble um, day in, day out. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I think so. I think, look, for the most part, these clubs have a higher level of integrity. And I think people do the right thing, definitely, for the most part. But there is, you know, that level of finding that competitive advantage. I think at Middlesex, we've always not necessarily been blessed with that because we haven't owned our home ground. So I don't think we have a great amount of input into into Lords and the pitches and the conditions and tactics and whatnot because they just produce, you know, the best that they can and they're the MCC and that's what they try and do. But I'm certain that there's conversations had between groundsmen and coaches around the country when there's home games. And I do think that kind of makes for a unique contest, which I do like. But as you said, you know, the games aren't on TV. There's no CCTV footage. So I do think that these sides will be doing all they can to try and get a competitive advantage. But, but I do quite like that unless they're stepping over the mark. Speaking yeah. about that um, Middlesex slightly being hampered by not owning their home ground, my absolute favourite cricket book, Stevie, is A Lot of Hard Yakka. And Rob's going to groan because I've tried to get him to read it about 20 times. Stevie talks about this book, like, the whole time. Yeah, but it's such a good book. It's Simon Hughes' um, account of when he played for Middlesex for his, pretty much his entire career. And he spe- there's a really good book, I remember, about this conflict between Middlesex cricket and the MCC owning the ground. And I think it was like it was coming down to a final counter-championship game they had Embry and Edmonds, you know, two of the best spinners in the country. And I think Brearley or Gatting, whoever the captain was, was just pleading with the MCC ground staff, groundsmen, please just give us a Bunsen, give us something that's going to turn. And they just completely refused, produced the flattest wicket they'd seen all season. The Oppo team scored 500 odd, declared and, you know, draw only three day games at that point. And they lost the championship as a result because the championship was on the line. And they just absolutely, there was no flexibility, no bending to the will. It was just, no, we're the MCC and we're going to produce the pitch that we're going to produce. And so, yeah. When you oh, said- and I think that was probably the same groundsman that we had up until last year with Mick Hunt there. But I think that could have coincided with a really funny story that Angus Fraser tells us when we talk about the MCC. And, and this year was the first time I've ever netted on the main ground um, because the nursery pavilion was being redeveloped. Um and we asked Gus, like, this is brilliant. I don't understand why we don't do this more often. Please, why, you know, we can net. There's obviously the slope. It's so unique. We could get a real competitive advantage here if, if we can train on the square. And he goes, yeah, well, basically we had that for a couple of years. But then um, Embers was bowling really well to Gat one day. Uh, I think he got him out about three times. And then Gat turned around, smashed all three stumps out of the ground and took out about, you know, 30 centimetres worth of turf. And Mick Hunt walked down and said, you will never ever, ever net on this ground ever again. And here we are about 25 years later, still not doing it, all because he nicked one that he shouldn't have and he smashed the stumps out of the ground. Brilliant. Incredible. I actually love that. That, that is great. We're running out of time, Steve, but one thing I, I said to Michael earlier, I really wanted to ask you, um, is David Milan, over the last 12 months, <sighs> international 2020 cricket, has been incredible to a degree that I could not have imagined before. Uh, obviously, you played with him for a long time at Middlesex before he moved to Yorkshire. 
I mean, clearly very talented, but could you have said maybe, you know, three years ago, two years ago, that he's going to be the most successful batsman in the history of international 2020 cricket who's played 20 games? I mean, he's a class act and, and he would always do it against the good attacks um, on the big stages at Middlesex. And I think he probably has benefited from getting picked arguably two years too late. He was a, a heavy run scoring county cricket for about almost 10 years before he got selected. So what he's had is the opportunity to really know his game, really find out how to score runs um, and play a few franchise tournaments along the way. So, yeah, absolutely. I don't, if you'd ever said to me, it's going to be him, Coley, Barbara Azam, Josh Butler, these guys in the top five, I would have said, well, oh, I'm not too sure. I knew he would be there and thereabouts. And I think I always thought he was probably going to you know, nail down a solid position in England's 2020 and, and probably one day side because I'd seen some pretty phenomenal innings from him. But yeah, his consistency has been unbelievable, hasn't it? And all over the country, all over the world, he's just played unbelievably well the whole time. Um, and I think he has a bit of a point to prove after maybe his test dropping. And he's that style of player when he gets the, the bit between the teeth and he has a reason to score runs. Um, he is very good like that. Um, so yeah, I'm not as surprised as probably a lot of people are because I stood at the other end and watched him belt some of the world's best around. But I think the consistency is just phenomenal. It's interesting what you say about um, knowing his knowing his game because there's been a, a few occasions. The most recent, ninety nine not out, he was on. He start as ever started a little bit slowly, getting sort of a run a ball to twenty. And I've got this group chat popping off like, oh, "David, you got to back quicker. We're chasing a big total. You can't do this." Um, but then come overs thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and suddenly those overs start going for double digits and the run rate. And you know, before you know it, he's scoring a strike rate of 130 and, and the game's dead and buried it just shows such a composure and confidence in his own game that he knows where he's going to score his runs and, and when sure I think it definitely benefits from someone like Morgie having played a lot of cricket with Morgie as well um, he's always been somebody who would come out and play in a similar way because they have such confidence in, and belief in their game that they can sem- win the game from anywhere or set a large total from anywhere so there's no doubt that in that dressing room He's been told, go out, play your way. Your way is a run of ball to 20, as long as you... Well, it does put you under a little bit more pressure because if you are someone who plays like that, you do have to pretty much do what Darby's done and be consistent and make sure that you're ending up, you know, 70, 80, 90, not out and winning games for your team. Whereas if you're someone like a Tom Banton or a Jason Roy, you know, those 40s off 20s can actually be very crucial to winning games of cricket. But as I said, I think that setup there would have allowed him to play that way. Um, go in there and, and, you know, understand that if you're the man who's going to come in at three or four, you be the rock of the innings. And I do think he also benefits from the fact that he has Bairstow and he has Roy and he has Banton and Morgie, all these guys who rarely strike under 180. So he can play that role. He probably plays the role that Joe Root played for a long period of time. And I was actually having this conversation with a few guys at my grade team out here. And we were talking about, how skillful you have to be to play a role like Darba does or like Joe Root does in England's one-day side because it's, it's incredibly difficult to go and strike at 150 without being able to clear the pickets every single ball like those other big boys can. So I do think there's definitely a role. Um, as I said, it's definitely helped by the management of that team and you know the class players who bat around him. Yeah, fair play. And I hope he keeps going. I hope he keeps going all the way to the tournament next year. Um, and just to, to wrap up, Steve, what are your hopes for 2021? What would be a good season for Middlesex, good season for you? I also read that you've got half an eye on trying to get redrafted into the 100 because you were a little bit disappointed you missed out the first time. 
Yeah, um, I think we've got some pretty clear goals at Middlesex. We we made some baby steps last year towards being where we'd like to be in four-day cricket. And I think going into our third season under new management, I think there's no real excuse this year for us not knowing how to win games of cricket. Um, we're starting to create you know, that balance again, like I spoke about previously, of those good experienced guys who have played 70, 80, 100 games and some fresh faces who are coming in and giving energy. So, you know, obviously there's been a bit of a shift in, in dynamic in the format for four-day cricket, but I don't think anything less than, you know, being in the top two or three of our um, particular pool in the championship would be acceptable. We, we understand there's a responsibility as custodians of, of a side like Middlesex and a big county, you know, a big test ground. We, we have a responsibility to make sure we're playing good cricket for our members and, and sort of to respect the past. So definitely in four-day cricket, there's uh, a high importance put on our performances. And I think in white ball cricket, I'm really excited, actually. I think the way we played the 2020 competition with a really, really young group. Um, and then if we add in a couple of overseas players there and, and Pete comes over in the 50, 50 over comp, I think there's some real you know signs of optimism there for our supporters, for sure. Um, and from a personal point of view, Obviously, very excited with the way I played in, in 2020 cricket last year. I feel like that was a bit of a breakthrough year and definitely something to build on. And, you know, similarly, probably just as disappointed with the way I went in Red Bull cricket. So, you know, back to the drawing board for me in four-day cricket, you know, got to earn my stripes again at the club just because I captain last year gives me no right to, you know, believe that I'll start inside next year. So I've got an unbelievable amount of hard work to do before the first game of 2021, a lot of runs to score in pre-season, you know, a lot of convincing to do of, you know, both myself, my teammates and, and the management that I can go in there and be as consistent as I was sort of 2016, 2017, 2018. Um, and then in white ball cricket, just keep kicking on from where I left off last year um, would be a great opportunity in the hundred. If I was to get one, I definitely feel like I know my game well enough now in, in that format to go and, put in performances time and time again, like I did last year. So yeah, I'd be over the moon if I could, you know, snare an opportunity in that competition. Um, but if not, it'll be 50 over competition and 2020 for Middlesex. And I'll just be out there trying to lead a young batting group and, and have a bit of fun along the way. Awesome. Well, good luck for it. I look forward to watching you. Yeah. Okay. Michael's words, best of luck for it. And um, for the rest of, well, for, for, the, for the new year, 2021, and hopefully COVID willing, vaccine willing will be, full houses at Lords and a, and a great summer ahead. Um, but Steve, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning and this evening for yourself. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I've, I'm looking at the time. I've got to get to work. So does Michael. Um, so have a, yeah, have a lovely evening and, and all the best, really. Thanks, boys. I really enjoyed that. That was awesome. Thanks very much. Well, there we have it. Michael, initial thoughts. Oh, I really enjoyed that. Particularly fun hearing about how that incredibly thrilling county championship um, climax happened on the day from his perspective, and he played quite a central role. So that was really fun. How about you? Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Andrew Gale always seems to come up in amusing cricketing anecdotes. So he sounds like quite the character. But uh, I, I think the thing that I was left with that I was most struck by, and I, it was as I said, it was a couple of about a month ago we spoke to him, but. Uh, that crossbow incident at the Oval, which I'd completely kind of forgotten happened, yeah. uh, the abandonment of a match, the deduction for a slow over eight that they were going to correct and had been promised they wouldn't be deducted points for, and then getting relegated off the back of that. Such a kick in the teeth. 
Uh, and you could tell, he spoke very frankly and honestly, although he said, yeah, we, we weren't very good. At the same time, we shouldn't have been relegated. It, it was unfair and it, it was very irritating. And so, I, yeah, I appreciated that candour. At the very end, he spoke very candidly about how poor he's batted, really, the last couple of years, you know, not even averaging above 30 and that he needs to start again, really, and recapture form from a few years ago, this coming summer. So we wish him the best of luck with that. But all in all, a, a thoroughly interesting and engaging chat. And also a really nice bloke. I've come across a few county cricketers, Irish age. So he's only a year or two older than us. He must be about 26. And I've I've met a few. We haven't had any on the podcast who would fit this description, but met them in other contexts. And they've come across as incredibly arrogant, not very friendly, and don't really want to talk to you. And he was the opposite of that. He was very... I mean, Sophia overheard bits of it and she was saying, oh, he seems like such a nice guy. He was such a friendly bloke. He brought a lot of energy to the podcast, she felt like. You know, he wanted to talk about different things, gave really long answers, uh, very open about life in the dressing room, how he felt different things have gone over the last few years. It was, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. And our huge Middlesex fan, Johnny Hall, promised us just, just that. He said it'd be great. Um, that Steve's got a great reputation. Um, he's always friendly to everyone, any fan, and yeah, he he proved it. He was lovely to have on the podcast. He was indeed. Well, uh, we'll leave it there, Michael. Rest up. You've yawned a couple of times this morning, so I hope you. Um... I think that's the chair, Rob. Yeah, do you reckon? All right. Well, uh, work hard, and I'll, we'll catch up after the second test. Oh, just a final little plug for everyone. Um, please head to hip6podcast.com, where this episode will be hosted, along with a blog I did previewing the first Sri Lanka test, and where we'll be putting lots of fun content, and there'll be lo- pictures of me and Rob's mugs. Um, so please go and have a look at our lovely brand new website, brought to us by uh, our good friend Will Kerry. It does look very slick, far slicker than if it was me doing it. We would have had Comic Sans and kid print fonts, and it, it would have looked absolute shambles. So... Yeah, um it does look good yeah so um do do head along there and otherwise wish you all uh, a very happy second week of sorry third week of january um and keeping you on the lockdown and certainly enjoy the, the cricket to come this coming week cheers everyone cheers rob